If you are in crisis in the United States, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This is a real and ongoing discussion about depression and suicide, about how it impacts individuals, families, and the society we live in. My name is Kevin Cotter, and I'm glad I didn't kill myself. Once again, welcome to another podcast. I'm, I'm excited about today because uh, we're going to talk to Marilyn Koenig, Executive Director of Friends for Survival. They're out of Sacramento, California, home of the mighty Sacramento State University. Go Hornets. That's my alma mater, if you guys don't know. Um, so Friends for Survival bridges the gap between despair and renewed hope. And it's really for those who have whose loss is recent enough that they can lean on the shoulders of people that have walked that path before. Um, Cause it's a difficult task of walking through that grief after a death by suicide. There can be found on the web at friendsforsurvival.org. If you need to reach out to them, uh, it's 800-646-7322. And that's all going to be in the show notes. So if, you didn't write that down. Don't worry. You can just look at the show notes and it's right there. Um, so Marilyn, thank you. Thank you for, for joining us. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very thankful you, you said yes. And it's, uh, let me give everybody a brief background on how I found Marilyn. It's, um, uh, one of my guys I grew up with, you know, more a friend, more of a brother than a friend lost his child recent, one of his children recently to suicide. And I was looking for resources that I could, you know, at least present to them. And, and uh, I think it was the NAMI chapter in Humble, I mean, not Humble, uh, Eureka. Um, yeah, Humboldt County. Uh, that led me to, to you, Marilyn. And, and, um, you know, so much of so much of what we talk about is suicide prevention, and I think what you're doing is such a phenomenal mission, uh, uh, giving hope, giving that first glimpse of hope to people that are going through this. And so, what what kind of led you to the founding of Friends for Survival, and how did that go about? And... Well, I'm. You know, in the 1960s, I um, was a very busy mom. Uh, we, I had seven children. I had four in high school at the time. And wow. then I had a couple in grade school. Then I had a little two and a half year old. And it was normal, you know, middle class household. Mm -hmm. um, the, the teenagers all had to have part time jobs. They were responsible for part of their tuition when they all, they all went to Catholic school. And so um, if you wanted a car, you'd have to have get a job, save your money, pay the insurance and buy the car. So that kind of, they couldn't quite drive at 16 then. It was closer to 18. That's prob probably <laughs> but, safer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was a busy household, uh, sports and music and uh, all kinds of activities with the children. And um, I was raised with a mother who was never involved in my up, 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 up school activities mm -hmm. at all. 
And so I kind of recreated what I wish I'd had. And so I was a very involved mother and enjoyed every bit of it. It was fun watching the parades in Little League going coming mm -hmm. down Center Parkway and uh, going to their games, uh, the scouting. I was this Girl Scout leader and I was a Cub Scout then mother and all those kinds of fun things. And there were carpools and so busy life. And um, it's all I ever wanted to be was a mom, actually. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in a career. I'd work part time at a bank. Uh, in those days, the banks opened at 10 o'clock and they closed at three. So you could get your kids off to school, go to your little part-time job, come home and be there when the kids got home. So um, my husband worked sometimes two jobs, but basically um, he was the landscape contractor at that point. Before that, he had worked for newspapers in, uh, in the uh, typesetting business. Hmm. So it was just, just a normal life. It mm -hmm. really was. And in those days, we didn't have a lot of the things that we have challenges we have now kids played in the in down the street with other kids that they went to school with it was just a, a, a really good environment well um in april 4th april 3rd of 1977 my 18 year old son who was the second oldest child he had just turned 18 uh he was a senior at christian brothers high school he was um he was basically a nerd I didn't mm -hmm. know the term, I don't think, in those days, but that's yeah. what he was. He uh, only wanted to get A pluses. Uh, he worked at Baskin Robbins, part-time job. And he was such a responsible young man that, that he was, um, the night of April 3rd of 1977, he was closing the shop for them. They weren't even there. His, his owners weren't there. They totally trusted him to close the shop and uh, at 10 o'clock, and, and he was fine. That, that's, that's the kind of responsible kid he had. Mm -hmm. car that he'd paid for. He'd had a girlfriend for a while and that, you know, it was just for, I don't know, six months or a year or something. And then um, he had just had a date with one girl that he had just had one date with that had came in and filled out an application for Baskin Robbins. And he, he called her a little bit later and wanted to see if he could get a date with her and had a date with her. And uh, a few days later, he was dead. Oh God. So he didn't come home from his Baskin Robbins job. Um, now he was a very, very precise, um, young man, very, very detail oriented, um, not happy unless he got an A plus, mm -hmm. uh, he was always registered for Sac State. The mighty, the mighty to, Sac State. Yes. Yes. That's what we call it. He yes. wanted to be, he wanted to be a criminologist. Oh, wow. And he had already researched that he was ready to go. He had taken his SAT test everything uh, everything seems so normal mm -hmm. and then he doesn't come home from work that night and so i waited up and i waited up and i got, didn't come home his brother came home from his part-time job and went to their shared bedroom and found a note on his, on his desk and it mentioned that he was going to kill himself oh god and he wrote seven notes um the only clue in that note was it was very short such so a family and to his, one to his brother it says you can have my, my things and somebody else he gave his fairly new golf clubs to somebody he played golf with uh in at school and their on their uh, team and um the car he wanted to give to this girl he had had one date with because she needed a car and um the only there was one only one sentence in it that gave me any clue he said this is not anyone's fault 
Mm-hmm. I don't have a future. That was totally irrational. Oh, yeah. And in those days, we didn't lock up guns, and guns weren't really a part of our life, but they were in a drawer, a pistol. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my husband had taken them out, taken the boys out, uh, maybe target shooting once or twice. But I mean, I didn't even remember where that gun was. So I don't know how he knew that gun was in a drawer in our bedroom, which would not have been a place the kids would have gone in and rifled through our drawers. So yeah, it was just, and he play, he planned this. For, we don't know how long, but he planned it. So what I realized afterwards um, was that there is a history of alcoholism in the family. We were born and raised in North Dakota, my husband and I both, and a um, lot of alcoholism because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of else to do but work and drink. Yeah, it, it's really true. Mm-hmm. And now I realized, I began to realize that they were probably all very depressed people, and they were self-medicating. Mm-hmm. We didn't we didn't know that in those days. That's that 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 connection was never made in those days, but through it. And um, I knew his his. Um, my mother-in-law was a very depressed person, um, and but Stephen didn't give us any clues. Yeah. His grades stayed up. He still ate. He still worked. He still kept everything normal. He went to jobs. He gave us no clues, and I think because he was such academically probably my brightest child, um, he was he was smart enough to just not make sure make sure not anybody knew. The, the kids at school that he ate lunch with every day, they knew they had no clue whatsoever. I've talked to them afterwards, mm-hmm. some years afterwards, and they yeah. said I, nothing. So anyway, I spent, um, I didn't know anything about suicide. I thought in those days, you, nobody talked about suicide in the 60s, 70s. Nobody talked about suicide. You didn't hear a word about suicide in any media newspapers, except in Sacramento Bee on page maybe two or three would be numbers such and such jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. And my so my concept of suicide was it was somebody that lived, um, an alcoholic that lived under the bridge or, mm-hmm. or lived and had no family, nobody that cared about them, nothing, yeah. you know, yeah. and they, they, were, they were just hopeless. Uh, that didn't fit. And the whole neighborhood, Stephen had been our um, uh, Sacramento Bee delivery boy in our neighborhood. The whole neighborhood knew him besides yeah. the school. Uh, and, and so it was like everybody was totally shocked, just absolutely shocked as much as we were. Mm-hmm. They closed the school so that the kids at the school could come to his funeral. That's how shocked everybody was. It was just yeah. amazing. So anyway, um, I'll just kind of summarize. I spent the next couple of years crying and putting my one foot in front of another, trying to take care of the kids as best I could and our family and my husband. And, and um, you know, but my priorities certainly changed. I didn't care if the living room got dusted. I, you know, other things just weren't important to me. My mother had had a car accident. She wasn't hurt. And I, I said, well, mom, just get another car. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just couldn't relate to this tragedy <laughs> of, a, of a car that got totaled you know, and she's not hurt. So <laughs> it was like, you know what? I, you know, yeah. life changed. Um, mm-hmm. I remember one of the, one of my friends, one of the other moms that I'd known for years with our kids going to school together. And she, she, she came up to me um, at a gathering and said to me, Marilyn, I'm so sorry. I didn't come by because I didn't know what to say. 
And I looked at her and I said, Veronica, I don't know what to say either. And I, I just, just cried. I mean, I just cried and cried and cried and cried. Um, didn't think about therapy. <laughs> I just didn't. I figured, you know, it's great. Well, it was the 70s, you know. Did, it, yeah, nobody, and nobody yeah. talks about suicide. So, um, but I, in the Sacramento Bee one time, there was uh, an article about the parent-teacher state committee meeting, state uh, conference, and there was a little article, a short article about their meeting, and they highlighted the fact that this one woman, Charlotte Ross, uh, was there to talk about youth and suicide. And I thought, ah, oh, somebody's talking about it. Hmm. I clipped it out, put it on my desk, and just kept it there. And I thought, I, I didn't think to do anything about it. Well, a couple years later, about two to three years later, I'd say about two years later, my uh, youngest daughter came to me and said, uh, when she came home from school in the kitchen and she was sitting at the counter and she said, mom, there was another, there was a, one of the, one of the kids at um, the other high school, St. Francis high school. It's a girl's high school, Catholic girl's high school. She said, uh, died. And, and I looked at her and I thought, why is she telling me this? I, she, I said, my gut just said, how did she die? Mm-hmm. Angela, how'd she die? She said, she killed herself, mom. Yeah. Then I was crying again, of course. And we were both crying. And um, that daughter was um, probably a freshman or so. I think she was a sophomore by that time. She was next in age to mm-hmm. almost, this, she's not, which was number six child. So Stephen was number two. So anyway, it made me stop and think. And I thought, oh, I know the secretary over at that school. Her kids went to school with my kids. They're in Holland High School too. And uh, I called I called Margaret up and I said, Margaret, you can, you, I understand that there is a student that died at the high school there. And um, if, if they wanna talk to somebody, you can give them my phone number. I just felt so bad that somebody else was going through this. And she said, well, actually she said, Marilyn, they, um, the young girl doesn't have parents. Parents have died. She was living with her aunt and uncle and she had a pet that died recently. That's all I knew. I never heard from anybody. I never heard from them at all, but it, it, it rattled my brain enough that I thought, okay. So I started thinking and I remembered that clipping on my desk and I dug and researched and I found Charlotte Ross. And I called her and I said, what do they do in schools for kids? And she said, well, I don't know what they're doing in your area. Why don't you call? So I called, I started calling. And um, I called some of the public schools and I asked for the school nurse or counselor or whoever. And um, I, two, some of them, of course, I couldn't get through to and a couple of them didn't even answer. And, but then this one in particular, I was, I was trying to talk to her and every, everyone else had said, well, we don't do anything. And then this one was very uh, curt with me, I would say. And she said, um, well, she said, uh, she said, we don't have that problem at our school. And it just, I said, well, by that time I learned something. Mm-hmm. I said, Between six to 10 teenagers in Sacramento kill themselves every year. And she said, oh, you know more about it than I do. And she hung up. <laughs> so, of course, you know what? You know what moms do? 
Yes, I do. I know. Do you? I know what my mom would do. Yeah. Yeah, you just thinking this is something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. Need to do something because you know why would a teenager in those days, if where they were feeling depressed and probably not even knowing what that was, um, because nobody talked about depression either. Mm-hmm. Nobody talked about that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and especially about teenagers being. I mean, teenagers are got their whole life ahead of them. Da 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 da. So, um, and thinking back. You know, if nobody talks about depression, nobody talks about suicide. And if you were feeling something and you just didn't really know what's going on with me, why am I, you know, I'm getting good grades. I got all this stuff, but I just feel so sad. I feel so hopeless. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever approach anybody and say anything? There's you wouldn't No, because because people think something's wrong with you. And some, and and you think I'm being gotten bad thoughts, or I mean, you know, yeah, or they tell you something's just it's just in your head, you'll get over it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's just temporary or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I can see why Steve never made an effort to even say anything to us, never, never mention anything at all. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, that spurred me on. (laughs) So, I, I called, so Charlotte and I talked some more, and she got me involved in a short story, she got me involved in a California Youth Assembly committee on youth suicide and had some legislation pending. I went to a compassionate friend support group that I found out about. And I thought there must be parents there that have lost their children to suicide. And I said, would you write letters to your legislators and that sort of thing? And there I met another mother who lost her teenage son who was 17, about three years before, about just about the same time I did. Uh And uh, I said to her, I said, you know, if you were a parent and you lost a child by any means, you could go to a compassionate friend, friends. That is a peer support group for parents who have lost children by any means. And I said, you could come here. But where would you go if you lost a spouse, a parent, a sibling, mm-hmm. some other relationship? And so we, um, short story is we did an assessment in our community and the crisis lines uh, in Yolo County, our adjacent county, and our Sacramento County crisis lines in those days. This was 1982. Um, not 1982. We we talked to a professor who taught death and dying at Sac City. We talked to pro, uh, funeral directors, and everybody said, "Go for it." There is a need. We kept saying, "Is there a need for us mm-hmm. to do this? Is there a need for us to do this?" And everybody said, "Yes." Everybody said yes. And um, our local suicide prevention said, well, crisis line, we we made appointments with the directors and we we, we did our research. And the, our local one said, well, she said, we don't do that, but we don't have the funding for it. But we would be help. We would be happy to help train people if that's mm-hmm. what you want to do. And we encourage you to do that. So we never did use that opportunity for them to train us. Uh, we went just on our own guts of how we felt and just compassionate friends model was you sit around and you talk and you share and you just encourage one another in our, in our grief. And I mean, grief is a natural thing after a death. Mm-hmm. Really, it's a very natural thing. You ought to be grieving. If you're not, I would worry about you. <laughs> so anyway, um, we uh, we decided uh, we would have a meeting. And uh, Chris Moon was my was the person that I that 
the other mother and I that started to do this and we had a meeting at her house. We had a note in the Compassionate Friends newsletter and said that we were having a meeting regarding possibly having meetings for families after a suicide death and you're welcome to come. And we had eight people show up and six of those people agreed to help us um, plan, develop and do whatever. We spent monthly meetings at my, around my dining room table and got organized. Um, we didn't have any money. I mean, we didn't have any donations or anything. Mm -hmm. So those six people amounted to four families. There were two couples and two single people. And we each put in 25 bucks and we had a hundred dollars and wrote up a brochure, um, had a couple of people tweak it for us, look at it, say, what do you think? Why does this look? And then uh, we took it to the printer. And we started this organization with a hundred dollars. So as you will notice in the name, there isn't the word suicide. Mm -hmm. That was one of the decisions we made very, very, very early on, because in those days we didn't have computers. And so people would get things in the mail. And we determined just from our own sense of how we felt, we didn't want to get mail that had the word suicide on the outside of it. We didn't want the postman knowing it, but we it just, it, it would, it would be, it's too deep a wound mm -hmm. to see that in your mail. So that is the reason why the name of our organization does not include suicide. However, as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, uh, Kevin, the what we do actually is suicide prevention. It just looks different. Mm -hmm. But underneath all of this is prevention, because if we don't help these survivors, we will have even more suicide deaths. And I particularly use the, the phrase suicide deaths mm -hmm. as opposed to suicide attempts. And, and you'll have those too. Yeah. But they now know from research that after you've been affected by the suicide death of another person, you are at higher risk to be suicidal yourself. That, that is, that happens. And of course it does. You think, well, what would happen if I did that to my mm -hmm. family? Now? Yeah. You know? And um, so anyway, we, we launched and had a meeting. I think the first meeting we had like 10 or 12 people show up and, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And I never dreamed it would get so big. I just thought it'd be like my little girl scout troop once <laughs> 10 or 12 people. And we'd sit there and, you know, share with one another, encourage one another and be friends. And, you know, yeah. walk. We'd, we'd journey together through this. We wouldn't be alone in mm -hmm. this suicide grief. That's such so, a powerful thing that uh, when I was, I did a lot of group therapy. Uh, I don't know if they're in Sacramento, but there was a group here called Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. And, and that's, it was basically a, the model where everybody in there has depression or bipolar or somebody they love has that. And you're in there and you're talking to people that are actually affected by it and they can understand what you're going through. And as you get better, you're, you know, as I got better, I, I had more to offer people who were just coming in and it was incredibly powerful. Um, it is. And, you know, it's just now kind of really getting accepted by the professional community. Mm -hmm. We have been the, the kind of uh, outside the circle of acceptance 
but now there actually is peer support training available uh, for anything, uh, other things. And they're actually having some certification here in the state of California. They started a whole program of being a certified peer support person. So it's for all kinds of things, which is really makes sense because ask the people who are going through it, what do you need? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily what some professional might write in a book. It's like, okay, the people that are actually going through it, what what do they need? What's helpful? What's not helpful? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what's not helpful for families like us is to hear the term suicide is preventable. That just, that's like putting salt in our wounds. Yeah. Because we know it can be preventable, but it didn't happen with us. And it didn't happen to the other almost 50,000 people that die in this United States every mm-hmm. year by suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, now they know about locking up guns. So the majority of people lose, use guns. And the other sad fact about suicide is the majority of people are men that have killed themselves. That's a horrible stat, a horrible yeah. stat, by far, far majority of them. I say approximately four out of five deaths are by men. So when the older a man gets, the higher the risk. It's, yeah, it's I, was in my, I was in my 40s. And, uh, you know, a lot like your son that I, I didn't really, I didn't know there was something wrong with me. Or not, I didn't even know if it's wrong with me is the right term, but that what I had was treatable, that it was addressable. It just felt like I was the worst piece of shit on the planet, you know, and, and I had lost all hope for everything. And, and there was uh, nothing that anybody else could, could have done to talk me out of it. It was kind of my journey. And I've, I found a card that my wife had given me when we were first together dating. And, and that was the first time that I really thought that maybe I'm not thinking straight. And that's, I made a phone call and uh, you know uh, but it wasn't, you know, and it wouldn't have been anybody else's fault. I, I look at my, my buddy that just lost his child. And, you know, the, one of the first things he said to me was, I guess that shows how good of a parent I am. And yeah, we feel like total family yeah, yeah. or total spouses would, you know, oh, yeah. you get the finger at you. If you're, if you've lost a spouse saying, well, why didn't you know? Why didn't mm-hmm. you it? And, and the, your in-laws uh, blame you. And there is so much blame. And then parents blame themselves just like that. You're the father that, you know, yeah. we blame ourselves first of all, and really beat ourselves up. And the moms are, really yeah. beat themselves up. They, they should have done something different. They should have known. They should have been prevented. And maybe they did prevent it for many years when if that child was struggling and they knew it and mm-hmm. they still lost the battle. Yeah. But yeah. when I talk to groups, I, I talk to them about, I, I think in our culture, and I think it's still true, people really don't understand suicide. And it, it is terribly complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's complicated because every story is different. The reasons are different. There's some commonalities in some of it, of course. Um, I don't think we have enough time in the whole half hour for me to gab about all of that. But um, the, what the one general thing that I do say is suicide is not about dying. No. These people weren't trying to die. They were trying to end their pain. 
yeah. or their situation or yeah. their circumstances Amen. Of, of something. Yeah. And it, it isn't that they want to die, but they keep in their mind at that point that they think that's the only way. Yeah. And end this situation because it's it seems hopeless and impossible to them. Yeah, that's what it was for me. It was that that was the next logical choice. You know, it made total sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 th- I thought I was doing everybody a favor too, you know, and yep. uh, how horrible to feel that, you know, and uh, I mean, there is no, I'm thankful for the experience, um, but I sure wish I didn't go through it. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I, I wish I could prevent that for everybody, but yeah, you can't. Yeah. And, you know, generally speaking, the, the general, most people really don't understand it at all. They'll say, well, it's a coward's way out. Mm-hmm. It is difficult to kill yourself. It is not easy. It's a very, very difficult. You got a plan. You got to do it. It is not there. This is not a coward's way out. It isn't a selfish thing. It's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with that. It is just it's it's what. Edwin Schneidman, a suicidologist with kind of the grandfather of suicidology, said it's psych pain, psych, psychological pain that they're in that is mm-hmm. just unbearable. Yeah. And unless we've been there like you have, uh, we truly can understand how hard it is, I think. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, um, so. Fast forward, we um, have. Um, you know, we're going to have to do about six more parts because you haven't even answered the first question. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. Very much oh, you could be my co-host from now. I mean, you are phenomenal. <laughs> I, I, you know, I could talk I just, to you for um, hours. Well, you know, personally, <laughs> I feel like God gave me this job and I've got to keep going because he and I, I, I kid about it with my friends and said, well, he hasn't fired me yet. So yeah. what am I going to do? Absolutely. I boss to go to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I keep. Going. But, you know, the joy of it is I have met people I would never have met if mm-hmm. it had been for my son's death. Uh, wonderful, wonderful people across the United States. And sometimes even from internationally, we've met now with Zoom meetings, we're mm-hmm. meeting people internationally. And um, it is so refreshing. You, you People that are so sad and, and they're calling and saying, you know, when they call and want information, what they're really saying, what they're really saying, which they can't verbalize because they're in such trauma, is tell me how I'm going to get through this. That's the bottom line. Yeah. How am I going to get through this? Because this looks like an impossible thing. Black tunnel. It, and it is just so traumatizing physically, emotionally, spiritually, every which way your whole life changes when there's a suicide death. It changes everything, mm-hmm. everything. And for years. Yeah. So how do we help people get through it in a as in a healthy way as possible how can we encourage them so one of the first things we have to do when people contact us or sign up on our website they can sign up on our website to get things is is to is to comfort them and which is acknowledge your pain 
We have to acknowledge your pain. This is probably the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you in your life. There aren't too many things worse than this. Honestly, the truth. Maybe if your house burns down and a whole family gets burned out. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. That you re that's much easier to rebuild. uh, These mass these mass killings. Mm. That's a whole nother layer. Oh God, yeah. So, but I mean, for the most part, this is probably the worst thing you're ever going to go to. Oh. Okay. My my phone. But this is the worst thing you're going to go to. So if you can just uh, encourage people, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I tell you, I we I agreed to a half hour. You you said you could do a half hour. Why don't we wrap? Why don't we wrap this one up? And I'll reach out. We'll schedule something else. Because you do that? Because I I absolutely. Some stories. If you. I'd like to tell you a little bit about, I, I got it off. Um, I didn't think to undo it. Um, we could tell, talk a little bit more about our services, which are pretty unique. Well, cause, cause so for the audience, I were using zoom. I usually don't, but I'm having some issues with my recording software. And so we're about to run out of time anyways on zoom. Okay. And, um, do you want to talk more? Cause I can, we can die. I can send you a new invite and let's do that. And okay. let's talk, let's have another session as soon as possible. We can do this. Um, we'll talk about more about our services actually. Okay. Um, and which well, are all free, which are all free. Yeah. And we've helped over um, probably closer to 10,000 families. At wow. This point. That's phenomenal. It's been, a, um, it's been an amazing journey. You, you are one of my heroes and you're going up on the law, even though you haven't had Jim boys tacos. Next time I'm in Sacramento, I'm coming by and we're bringing Jim Boy's tacos. Okay. So, um, but I will reach out and we will do we will do this and I'll let me get my uh, my audio issues taken care of and you could talk as long as you want next time. And uh, okay. um, but Marilyn, phenomenal meeting. I just I'm I'm a big fan. Um, friendsforsurvival.org. Look them up. And uh, if you can donate, there's a way to donate on the page. If you need help, um, call them up. And because uh, it is about living. It's, Absolutely. It's about. Know, yeah. And it's those are living. hard, hard steps, but yes. but it is possible. And yeah. uh, so so thank you very much. And I we will schedule something. And as many times as you want to come on. You, you can call me up and say, I want to do a new podcast and, and we'll do that. Okay. You know, I, I'm pretty good at talking. Yeah. You're no, you're phenomenal. You, I well, mean, we have passion for it. We couldn't do this if it wasn't a passion all day. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, but, it's a you hard know, subject. It's a hard subject, but it is but, possible but to, you, uh, you make it, you, you've made it easier for 10,000 families. Yeah. So that's, well, that's, thank you so much for the invite. Yes. I really appreciate it, Kevin. I'm glad to get to know you. Yeah, me too. And and I I am well next time I'm coming home, I am gonna come up to SAC and buy you tacos. Okay. So okay. You have to come by our office and meet staff and and uh, so let's talk more about what kind of services and what other things we can do to help. Yes, we will do that. We will do that in part two. Okay. And um maybe maybe next week. Okay. Okay. That would be fine. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll send you an email. Okay. Thanks, right. Kevin. Bye-bye, Marilyn. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Okay.